This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 507. I love that question. And I can tell, and it's always nice to talk to people who've read the book when we're having an interview. <laughs> That's a really great question. We are in the midst of an unprecedented degree of technology-driven change at the same time that society faces challenges more complex than our organizations and we as individuals have been prepared to handle. We have all borne witness to the changes, for better or for worse, that technology has had on society, our nations, cities, the nature of work, and the human experience. But technology is neither the hero nor the villain of this story. Hi, I'm Jeff, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I believe if you want to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. It's the last episode of 2023, and I've chosen as my guest for this episode, author Brian Evergreen. His book is called Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. I'll ask Brian to unpack the idea that a more human future is a component of how we implement AI and its related technologies, that it's not an outcome at the end of a process, but integral to each step. We'll look at why when a new technology introduced is capable of doing something that was previously considered an exclusively human capability should not be met with fear or skepticism or both. He'll explain how envisioning the future is not a talent or a gift, but a skill that can be developed and much, much more. As we get set to kick off a brand new year, I can't think of a better way to do it in style than to surround yourself with a community of people who care about personal and professional development as much as you do. That's the kind of people you'll find inside the Read to Lead Plus community, and it's a community that will only cost you $9 a month. In fact, the first two weeks as you try it out are absolutely free. This community includes a library of business book summaries. We're adding new ones all the time, by the way. The chance to rub elbows and get to know other members of the community. Multiple live sessions each month, including a session taught by me and another taught by a guest expert and plenty more. Again, you can check it out with no obligation, absolutely free for 14 days. And then after that, it's only $9 a month if you decide to stick around. The place to go is very easy to remember. It's my name followed by dot me. That's Jeff Brown dot me to find out all about a Read to Lead Plus membership. Jeff Brown dot me. 
Brian Evergreen is the founder of The Profitable Good Company, a leadership advisory company that partners with and equips leaders to create a more human future in the era of artificial intelligence. He is best known for his work advising Fortune 500 executives on artificial intelligence strategy. Building on his expertise working at Accenture, Amazon Web Services, and Microsoft, Brian guest lectures at Purdue University and the Kellogg School of Management, sharing the unconventional and innovative methods and frameworks he developed leading and advising digital transformation initiatives at many of the world's most valuable companies. His new book is called Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. Let me officially welcome you to the Read to Lead podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. And I want to start by just making a a few silly comparisons between you and me. Uh, We have a lot in common, but we're both authors. Uh, That's probably the most obvious thing. But going back even further than that, I'm a former music education major, played the French horn. Uh, I've uh, studied music theory. Uh, I sing, (laughs) though I don't often do it publicly. I I, I play chess, though I've not done it competitively. You and I have done a lot of the same things. It just seems that you do them at another level. (laughs) Talk to me about this varied background that you have, uh, and then somehow you land in just sort of the AI world, the technology world from all of that. So it's interesting when you paint the sort of picture of that. It, it has been an interesting journey. It's always fun when I meet with other folks in the AI space and we talk about our backgrounds and and a lot of them have a traditional, the background you would expect for somebody working in AI. And then I usually joke that, you know, I um like, oh, I have the most traditional background of what, what, what you would, you know, the way that you would plan to go into AI, which is chess and then music and right. So um <laughs> So yeah, in terms of that background, I'd say that um, my my parents had a really they had they really wanted me to be what they called a Renaissance person, mm-hmm. and and they felt like it's good. And and I think my dad was a really big fan of uh, Leonardo da Vinci, and um, and the fact that he was he did everything from sculpting to these amazing sketches to inventing you know flying machines, and and he 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 has such a and, and painting obviously right. Mm-hmm. He had such a a wide array of skills and areas that he mastered, and um, I think my dad drew a lot of inspiration from that. And so anytime I showed any interest in anything, my parents would immediately say, okay, we're going to, you know, invest in getting you lessons or, or giving you access, buying books on that or, or whatever it might be. And so, mm. and, and so I think that when my brother and I both were really interested in chess, uh, my, the first chess tournament we played in, I was six and it was against other kids. It was a, a scholastic tournament and it just sort of took off. My dad ended up becoming a coach of our, our school. He created a chess team for our school and he researched and found out about tournaments that would, you know, were taking place and, and started taking us to these tournaments. And, um, and it just kind of went from there to us, you know, representing the U S versus other countries. And, Mm. um, and really, I think the, the, the lesson that I, one of the many, there's many lessons that come from any discipline, the deeper you dive into it in a way, I think the more synergistic value that it brings to other disciplines. And so in chess in particular, you learn a lot about strategy and and patience. And um, unlike real life, where when you set a strategy, you, know, you paint a vision, you set a strategy, and then you go try to bring your strategy to life. It might be longer than your tenure at a company, for example, before you get feedback on how on how good your strategy was. Mm. But in chess, you know, the longest game that I ever played was eight hours. And so, um, yeah, it was I was 12. I think. Um, and I was playing against an adult um, and, and, um, and I ended up winning, which I was very glad about. And, um, but, but if you think about if the longest game is eight hours and if I played, you know, I don't know how many 
thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of games, you're getting feedback, you know, immediately at the end of each game and throughout the game on how well your strategy is working. And you have to be dynamic because you might have a really good plan and then your opponent does something that you wouldn't have expected. And so I think that the practice of strategy, I think, plays its out really significantly in chess and the fact that you can't blame it on anything else because there's no luck in chess. It's 100 percent, you know controllable, so to speak, in terms of your pieces. There's no, you don't roll a dice and, and have something random happen on the board and you can't blame it on anyone else. It's one-on-one. And so unlike if you think about if you, when you go through school, you do school assignments, you do, you do group assignments, you do, you know, and, and, and in a lot of cases you're, you're being asked to memorize and recite things. And um, the idea of saying, okay, this is a strategy that you're putting in place and you you get to win or lose based off of what you do and uh and you know with this goal of trying to get a trophy or a medal or whatever it might be and um i just think that was a really unique experience for for that set of years that really shaped the way that i tend to think about things i mentioned to you that one of the things that intrigued me right off the bat was the subtitle of your book the human future part of it in particular unpack if you will what autonomous transformation means or how you define it for those that might be trying to wrap their head around it, but also unpack the idea that a more human future is a component of how we implement AI and its related technologies, that it's not an outcome at the end of a process, but integral to each step. That's great. I love that question. And I can tell, and it's always nice to talk to people who've read the book um, when we're having an interview. (laughs) That's a really great question. Um, So in terms of defining autonomous transformation, what I'd say is we've been on this journey from analog to digital that we're calling digital transformation. Mm. And the next phase beyond digital is autonomous and and autonomous, meaning that that systems have um, autonomy, that they can make decisions or, or do tasks without humans in the loop. And transformation being that it transforms the nature of how we either work or the or the nature of how we experience mm-hmm. some aspect of our lives. And so one one example of a, of something that I could see as an autonomous transformation would be when you have in in developing countries if there's a natural disaster. Today that the, when you need to get um medication, you know, critical medication out to that that you know town or, or a place that was impacted and the infrastructure has been blocked they they quickly fly you know they load up and they fly those medications as close as they can and there's this amazing um, project that Merck has worked on where they've actually loaded up these drones and flown drones over and that's I think a, a good example of digital transformation but I think that taking that a step further to autonomous transformation would be if you imagine that once that you know, natural disaster occurs and people become aware that there's a, a hit to infrastructure and that those people are in need, um, that they can merely set the, the process in motion and that the machines can autonomously load up the, the, the critical medicine that's needed and then make micro transactions with planes without humans needing to be in the loop and load themselves onto those planes or trains or the, whatever the right transportation method is. And then when it t- comes time to fly, they can fly themselves autonomously. If there's a storm, they can choose to come down and land and, and, and again, make another microtransaction with a local charger mm. and then make their way there as quickly as possible, the same way that that we're, we've, we've already gotten to now, mm. but without any humans in the loop. And if you scale that to a degree where now there's so many things that we aren't able to do as people today that would add value to our lives, that if we can have machines use autonomous um, technologies to be able to assist with those, then that frees up our, if you think of the hierarchy of needs, that, that pushes, I think, us as humans up the pyramid from repetitive tasks toward creativity, the hierarchy of work. Mm. 
So that's how I think about autonomous transformation and specifically the more human part is I've had a lot of people when I was working as a AI strategy lead for Microsoft US meeting with Fortune 500 C-level executives. I had a lot of people ask me, okay, and I would talk about, you know, how we need to, it starts with our people. Like the way you get more value out of machines starts with your people. And so I'd want to have, you know, HR leaders in the room at the same time that we had technology leaders, because I'd want to design at the same point a strategy for the people transformation and the workforce transformation alongside the technology. And, um, and they would often say, well, that all seems nice. And that's, you know, that's, in a way, they would treat it in a lot of cases like it was extracurricular. And mm-hmm. but but let's just focus on the value that we can get out of the technology. And what I would tell them, and what I'll, what I've written about, and what I'll share here is that the way you get value out of your machine starts with your, your people, and not just the fact that they're experts. So you can have the best data scientists in the world, and that data scientists, if they go to organization A, where they're either not able to work well with the domain experts for whatever reason, or they're pushed for too tight of a deadline, or they're treated poorly by their management, any number of those factors, they might not be able to get any the effective work anywhere close to their capacity. Mm. You put that same person over here in an organization, where they're being honored and respected for their expertise. They're able to collaborate well with the other experts that they absolutely need in order to create anything of value. And there's, you know, realistic timelines and there's flexibility when things don't go as planned. You know, the same person will will be able to achieve a significant difference in their impact based off of where they work. And so I think a lot of times people think if I set up the right sort of dominoes, everything will flow. Mm-hmm. Um and and if I have the right experts and I'm putting the right amount of investments, um, and I've I will say I've fallen prey to that as well. But and I've since learned that I, I would I would rather have experts that are slightly you know just a, 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 even a level lower in terms of their expertise, but that can work well with each other than a group of experts that can't. Right, and uh, and that comes down to a leadership a leadership challenge. You know, it seems that when uh, any new technology is introduced that is capable of doing something that was previously considered, you know, an exclusively human capability, we meet it with 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 fear and, and skepticism uh, or or all the above. <laughs> um, what would you say to someone listening right now who sees what's happening in the world, especially these last twelve months, thirteen months, right. and is worried about their job, or maybe they're they're leading a company and they're worried about their their industry, what would you say to placate them, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the first thing I'd say is that AI has never come for anyone's job. Mm. And I mean that literally. So if you think about it, AI has never shown up at a workplace, knocked on the door <laughs> and taken, right? Taken somebody's right. job. It's leaders who have decided I'm going to try to cut costs or mm. I'm going to try to, um, you know, uh, usually it's cut costs. I'm trying to think of another reason, but I think it's almost always yeah. cutting costs, right? right? And use this technology to try to replace the labor cost of, of, you know, how we've been currently doing this work. And so what I would say to anyone who's inside of a company that's worried about their personal job, I'd say, look not to the technology and what it's capable of, but look to your leadership because the same technology could either be used to augment the work that you do and to make help the entire workforce do more with the same amount of people that you have and be able to focus on top line growth 
as opposed to, you know, shrinking the bottom line. And then, um, so that, that's one type of leader. You could have a different type of leader who, regardless of where, where the technology is, they're always looking for ways to cut costs and they're, they see their people as expendable. Mm-hmm. And if you work for that kind of leader, it doesn't really matter exactly how good the technology is. They're going to be constantly trying to find ways to do that. Mm-hmm. And you, and you would be at risk in that environment. So that's the first thing I'd say if you're inside of an organization wondering about your own personal job is look to your leadership and that will be the biggest determining factor. And then in terms of, you know, flipping that around and saying, if you're that leader and you're thinking about your market and your industry, the first thing I'd say is communicate with your people. That's unfortunately seems to be a competitive differentiator right now to actually come out and say, okay, we're curious about all this AI stuff too. And so here's the committee that we put together that's going to look into it. And I want to let you know that as we embark on this, we have the same values that we've had all, you know, the last 20 years that you've worked with us or however long. And this is when you can hear the next, up, the milestone of the next update from us. And if you don't hear from, you know, about this between now and then, you, you have no reason to worry whatsoever. In, and a lot of times I think leaders want to give certainty. They want to give, okay, I, I can't give an update of exactly what is going to happen with this technology. So I should not say anything. And in the absence of certainty, we as humans feel that uncertainty. We experience it as physical pain. Um, neuroscientists have found this. And so the thing in the middle that we can give is we can give clarity. So we can give clarity about how we're going about it. Uh, the, the goal of saying we want to augment our people, for example, uh, we want to be able to do more with the same or less. Not less, because then that will, that again, will raise that uncertainty question. So we want to do more with the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and then I would say in terms of the market, what I would say is that Blockbuster, I think is a great example that everyone's aware of the <laughs> 2001, the op- opportunities to acquire Netflix. What people are less aware of is the fact that Blockbuster had actually developed and piloted a um, on-demand service that's streaming service effectively in 1995, 12 years before Netflix introduced streaming. And and I actually had the good fortune of meeting the person that led this pilot. They ended up shutting it down because it threatened 12% of their revenue from late fees. And so what I would say is if you're a leader that is trying to figure out how AI might impact your market, what I'd say is don't wait and look to react or be a fast follow to someone else. I would also say, don't just pick off a bunch of use cases and just start trying to move quickly. Being busy is not as effective as having a strong strategy. So I'd say instead think, okay, what is the future of this market and of the value that is being created for clients or customers in this market? And now that we know that these capabilities are coming to the fore, is there any further future that could be created that might be possible now that wasn't possible before. And I would focus on eyes, you know, sort of on the horizon, so to speak, and make investments to try to bring that future to life, as opposed to trying to say, how am I going to react? Because sometimes I feel like organizational leaders are like icebreakers waiting around, you know, a big sheet of ice in in the Arctic Circle, and they're waiting for someone else to go, or they're waiting for a report from Gartner that someone already went there and it was able to achieve ROI. And I think instead, you as a leader need to break the ice. And um, a lot of that has to do with trust. And it's been in the technology space of working with partners and technologists whom you can really feel like you can trust. But I'd say, you know, when it comes to envisioning the future of your market, no one has the context that you do. No one has the context about your company, about what you're capable of, your core competencies. You know, if you're hiring outside counsel, um, they they can come up with some great ideas, but the best thing they can do for you is facilitate you and your team envisioning because that's a skill, not a not some 
kind of gift that's been given by the oracles. So I'd say, you know, having that and going through that process of envisioning the future of your organization and market is the best way um, to future proof yourself, so to speak. You don't be, mm-hmm. don't wait for the future to happen to you. Be the thing that everyone else has to figure out and scramble. How on earth are we going to react to this? Yeah, it's this concept you talk about in the book, I believe, called problem solving versus future solving, essentially, right? It's what you're, it's what you're ultimately talking about. Um, I spent a number of years as a broadcaster, and uh, one of the reasons I'm not a broadcaster anymore, I, well, I guess I still am in the sense I do a podcast, maybe, but uh, one of the reasons I'm, I'm no longer a broadcaster is because I felt like we were always spending our time problem solving rather than future solving and making decisions based on how it protects the way we deliver content via radio waves versus really thinking about the future long-term. You just mentioned envisioning the future being not a talent or a gift, but a skill that, that can be developed and that it's one that organizational leaders have to, to hone both, uh, as you see in the book, individually and collaboratively if their organization is going to create lasting value. Can you expound a little bit more on that? Absolutely. So it comes back, at least for me in my personal journey, it comes back to that chess you know, anecdote that I shared in the beginning about really envisioning a, a position on the board, envisioning you know the, where, where you want to be to get checkmate, so to speak, mm-hmm. and, and setting about a strategy and then going about actually trying to create that. And then seeing that in most organizational contexts, when I first got into the um, technology space working at Accenture, I would work with various leaders and then, you know, throughout my career since then, where I would, I would have anticipated that leaders are setting these sort of like Steve Jobs-esque, but maybe on a smaller scale, like vision for the future of, this is the future of adhesives, or this is the future of this manufacturing thing. And this is the goal that we're trying to create. And in a lot of cases, I, I found instead that they were saying, okay, let's start at the bottom of the organization and let's have everybody just come up, come up with problems that need to be solved. And then that'll filter up to the, you know, manager and then the senior managers and the directors and the VP. And, and then we'll choose which things we're going to fund based off of the estimation of how much return on investment we'll get mm. for the number, for these problems. And the, um, you know, back to that icebreaker analogy, I'd say that's a lot like fine tuning your icebreaker in the harbor, but not taking it out to sea because you're not, if you're problem solving fundamentally is how do you make the thing you already have slightly better? right? How do you improve the efficiency? If you've just launched a brand new product, the next best thing to do is to make it more efficient because it's brand new and naturally it'll have lots of inefficiencies. Mm. But if you've been doing, you know, if you have a product or something you've created and that you've been doing for a number of years or decades, um, or even for a century, um, mm-hmm. the next step is not to, you know, drive out 2% efficiency. Uh, not, naturally that makes sense, especially if you, if you're in some kind of economic hardship or recession that, you know, that that's kind of the natural bend everyone takes. But in terms of future solving, what I'd say is that um, it starts with forgetting about what you have now. And, and an example is from uh, Bell Labs. And you may have read this in the book about the vice president brought all of his um, directors together. And he said, um, I, I'm so sorry to tell all of you that the tel- U.S. telephone system went down last night. Right? Okay. I can see you smiling. You must yeah. you must remember I, from the book. <laughs> I did read this. Yes, yes. Yeah, and so and I'll summarize it, you know, quickly. Um, but basically, he said it went. The system went down. He he was a little bit animated, right? And he shared with and people were looking at skeptically between themselves because some of them have made phone calls that morning. And he said, "I'm telling you right now, the system is down and it's irreversible. There's nothing we can do to fix it. And anyone who doesn't believe me by noon today is going to be fired." <laughs> and uh, and of course, now he really had their attention. And um, and then he asked them what were the greatest innovations they'd ever come up with. 
And I, I won't, you know, list all of them for, for the sake of the time, but I will share that basically all of them were things that had been invented in the late 1800s. This meeting was taking place, I think, in 1952. Um, they had been invented in the late 1800s and they'd been implemented, you know, in 1920, 1930, et cetera. So he, he sort of joked, he said, okay, those are our three best inventions we've ever had. So what in the world have you all been doing? Right. Cause that effectively means all those things were invented. Some of them before these people, these leaders were born. And he said, I'll tell you what you've been doing. You've been managing the current system. You've been maintaining. We're in a maintenance mode right now. And he said, instead, then the reason I started with this analogy of, you know, the, the telephone system going down is if we believe that it actually had gone down, knowing all that we know about technology and what we're capable of today, what brand new, you know, best of class system would we build? Because if you start with what we have and think, how can I make it better? You, you, there's a there's a limit to the value that you can create out of that. But if you instead forget about it for a moment, say, what would be the most incredible thing I could possibly build if I were starting now? Mm-hmm. And then say, okay, can I bridge to that from where I am, which they ended up doing. And the, the work they did over the next couple of years in that ended up being the basis of the cellular phone, ended up being the basis of the touch. They, they created the touchtone phone during that day. There was a number of innovations that simply wouldn't have happened if that, if that leader hadn't gone up and said, this is a process we're going to do. And we're going to forget about at least for obviously i'm sure he's still at operational leaders maintaining the system but in the meanwhile he had a group of leaders say we're also going to think about the future of this and and start with what we would create if you know if you're in an energy company i often say you know if a new island were surfaced in the pacific and and we needed to create a grid for it what would we create and and can we work backwards from that to to what we have you know um in the other continents i think caller id came out of that too if i'm not mistaken yeah that's right good memory Going back to this this idea of just fear of the future of AI and technology, mm-hmm. uh, you, you share a story uh, of the world champion chess player Gary Kasparov, beaten by the computer back in the in the late nineties. I can't remember what they called that computer, but um, Deep blue. Oh, that's it. Yes, and, and the takeaway is often that oh, here we go again. Machines have caught up uh, with with human intelligence. You say though that there are are several problems or fallacies with that thinking. Yes, absolutely. There there are, and and. Um, when you think about, because we've seen that since then, right? In 97, chess was seen as one of the last great, okay, this is so uniquely human because mm. it takes strategy and creativity. And and so, you know, of course, machines will never beat us at chess. And then, you know, IBM developed Deep Blue and and it beat Gary. It lost to Gary Kasparov in 95, I believe. And then it ended up beating him in 97 uh, out of, you know, I think they did a best out of seven, the same way that they do in, in, you know, large international tournaments. The takeaway that I think a lot of people had at the time was, well, that's it. I mean, they're just as smart as we are. So, you know, here comes Terminator, right? And um, and it didn't, it didn't come, right? And that was 26 years ago, almost 27. And so now I think we're in another era where, okay, wow, look at how well chat GPT can generate text. Now computers are just as smart as we are. It's just a matter of time. And I think we've been doing that cycle for, for we've had this interest in, in a way, kind of obsession with this idea that, you know, technology will one day overtake us. Um, and so the things, the logical fallacies that I've seen that I, and that I wrote about, there's, there's really three of them. One of them is the slippery slope fallacy, which is basically saying, if we take one step in any direction, we imagine all the next steps and that they're all going to happen very quickly. And so if you imagine, okay, a machine is able to do chess. Now the next logical step is that it's going to be able to do this, the other games. And now, okay, wow. Now, now it can beat us at go. Okay. Then it's just a matter of time. Right. And so we just, we imagine the worst case scenario. We imagine 
happening very, very quickly. When the thing that's interesting that I would, would counter that with is that if you think about what happened with the the, the systems between chess and Go and ChatGPT, for example, mm. each one of those, if you, it, I think a lot of people uh, in the in the media and and folks that are not in technology. Think of it like a single thread, like as if there's a machine that is continuing to add more, like it's working out, it's getting stronger and stronger and it's adding more and more capabilities, right? It looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So but that's not true. Like IBM Deep Blue is gathering dust in a library now. Mm. Or that's not a library, I'm sorry, a museum now. Mm. And um and and it's no longer working. It's not somehow connected to the system that did AlphaGo, and that's not connected to the system. And not only that, they're written in, in many cases in different programming languages. Mm. So they can't even necessarily integrate, even if they wanted to, mm. um, even if the leader, the people wanted to integrate them, I should say. Um, I'm sure they could with enough investment. But mm. even then, cognition, the ability for us as humans to you know, conceive and generalize and, and the, you know, these, we have these innate cognitive abilities that you can't recreate by creating, you know, the ability to execute this task here and the ability to execute that task here. Even if you could put them all into a single system, that doesn't somehow stimulate cognition. Um, and there would have to be a, another fundamental paradigm shift in the way that we even think about computer science. And I, in my belief, and, and this is shared by many other leaders in the AI space, and that that we would need another whole nother form of of computer science and and thinking about it paired with multiple scientific breakthroughs to get to the point where machines could actually show any kind of real cognition mm. um and so that's the first fallacy, slippery slope. The second is non sequitur. And non sequitur is where the basically the second half of the argument doesn't follow the first half. So if you think about if you say, well, gee, if machines can write poetry in the style of Shakespeare faster than I can then just imagine how smart they must be. And, and they'll be able to take over these systems and they'll be able to take over the whole world. <laughs> and the conclusion doesn't really follow the, the first half. The fact that they've created systems that can generate poetry quickly, being able to generate poetry does not mean that you can then control other systems or that you're aware of yourself or that you can set your own goals, which ChatGPT has never done. Uh, mm -hmm. None of those things, right? Just the poetry part, not, not being aware of itself, not setting its own goals, um, not escaping, you know, it's, it's servers to go take over other servers. There's um, quite a few people that, that are termed AI researchers today who've never worked in the field of AI. And, and I'm not going to name them, but, um, mm -hmm. where they basically said, if you start with the logical sort of leap of faith that machines will become super intelligent, what are all the risks? And then they research what those risks could be. And they, and they come up with, and they, you know, imagine all these scenarios. And then they call that AI research. And then they're invited to, you know, to write for Time Magazine and for these big press <laughs> conferences, right? And, and, you know, events and such, um, you know, Ted getting on the TED stage, but they themselves have never worked in the field and they're taking mm -hmm. that le leap of faith. And so I think that's really distracting from um, and, and causing a lot of confusion about what these technologies are actually capable of and how concerned we should be about, you know, um, existential risk. And then the third, the third argument or the third fallacy is, um, of course, anytime you do a list of three, you always forget the, or any, any list, you <laughs> always forget one of the last ones. So there's <clears throat> slippery slope, non sequitur and appeal to authority fallacy. Okay. So that, that plays on the, what I was just sharing, which is that, um, the idea that someone has authority in one space applying mm -hmm. to everything else. And so this happened when, um, Stephen Hawking 
interview with the BBC where they asked him how, how he felt about his new, um, yeah, there was a system that was using um, machine learning to be able to assist him in speaking. And they said, what do you think about, you know, what are your thoughts on AI? Mm. And he said, well, I mean, you know, AI is really proving to be valuable in its application. And um, if we ever got to a point where, you know, AI were, were real AI, which, you know, basically AI was as intelligent as humans. We as humans wouldn't be able to keep up because it would be able to self-replicate itself and it'd be able to continue researching and advancing and so on. That, you know, the next day there was a, a big blast across all media about, okay, Stephen Hawking is saying that, you know, humans are have, have now existential risk from AI. And mm. one of my favorites, the, the first line of the article was pity the poor meat bags. And, but what's happening there is he is, you know, Stephen Hawking was a absolute expert in the field of astrophysics, which is not the same as the field of artificial intelligence. It's mm. not even, they're not even branches <laughs> off the same tree. Right. And so we have these instances where someone who's an expert in one field and they're highly regarded makes a comment on another field. And then that's, you know, becomes a, a pivotal moment where um, people who otherwise don't spend a lot of time thinking about AI, especially, you know, seven years ago, whenever it was that that happened, mm. You know, that's one of their only impressions is, oh, my goodness. Wow, that sounds pretty scary. <laughs> and um, and I, I sometimes equate that to having a, um, a, our mental model of something is like a block of marble. And we have to be mm. conscious of what we let chip away at it. And so mm. the, your concept of AI could be constructed of, if you're not careful, various article titles, overheard conversations, maybe a podcast that you listen to. And, and now you have a complete construct in your mind that is not necessarily curated of what something is. And so a lot of people that are not as close to the field have these conceptions about AI based on, that are, I think, very reasonable for them to have based off of what is, is being put out there in the media that is not necessarily realistic. And so I think the appeal to authority fallacy, the solution to that is to just dig deeper. And so if you hear something so-and-so says, or, or, you know, this is the end of blah, 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 or whatever the, the article title might be, or, or even research. Sometimes there's researchers who say, we think that, you know, because we've created this new technology that can lift really, really heavy things, um, we think that it will have application in manufacturing and can assist with factory work, let's say. And then from there, somebody who wants to, you know, get a lot of media attention says researchers have come up with a way to replace jobs in manufacturing. And it's like that's if you go back one click further and look at actually the research, even just the abstract, you'll see, oh, that's not what they're saying at all. That's there's a leap there because that gets more attention. And then you have influencers who maybe haven't read the research. They just read the article and now they're sharing it. Right. And now we're having this dialogue over here about what's something that's different than what's actually happening over in the research space. And so that's why I, I usually recommend that people, when you hear something and, it, and if it's relevant to you or causes you alarm, honestly, just two extra clicks to like find the sources of where that's coming from. When you see that online, you can get to the root of what's actually true or not. And in a lot of cases, it's it's surprising. Speaking of, of, of Stephen Hawking and volatile comments, I want to chat briefly about Elon Musk. I just finished Walter Isaacson's Elon Musk biography yesterday. And obviously, he's very close to AI and all that he does. His concern is one company having too much control. I mean, he started OpenAI and called it OpenAI because it was supposed to be open. It was a nonprofit. Now it's not a nonprofit. It's a for-profit. And he's no longer a part of it. And Microsoft's involved. And um, this is straying from your book a little bit. But if you're, if you're willing, I'd love to just get some of your thoughts and opinions on his concerns, whether you agree they're valid or, or not. 
So I, yes, I, I, I'd be happy to stray from the book. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've been following the conversation closely because Elon is, I mean, he's the richest person that we know of in the world in terms of, you know, reported numbers. And he has a lot of influence. He's done some really innovative things uh, with Tesla and SpaceX, things that people, you know, they, this idea of future solving, right? The people, yeah. the data said that you couldn't land rockets, right? That's what all the data, the preponderance of data was saying. And yet he, I would argue, future solved and said, well, what would have to be true for us to land rockets? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that and us landing rockets would have to be true if we wanted to have any, be really any kind of spacefaring people. Um, we, we couldn't just blow up every rocket, you know, uh, we'd have to be able to land them um, and reuse, reuse them. So I, I have a lot of respect for the ways that he's um, been able to make breakthroughs. And so, but when it comes to the AI conversation, it's interesting. He seems to, to believe that we do have existential risks as people and that machines will become super intelligent. Mm-hmm. And I, I would say that he and I diverge in that. Um, and I don't know, I don't, I don't want to speak to, to why he believes, um, that I'll say for why I don't believe that, which is similar to what I shared before. But when you take data and you, and, and data being just a record of the past, um, that's all that data is. It's not, I think we talk about it like data is new oil or data is, (laughs) you know, we talk about it so much. It's reached a point of semantic satiation where it's kind of lost all of its meaning. But if you think about how data is actually generated, and I, I, I love sharing this example with folks. Um, I used to work right next to a place that was a donut shop. It was called Top Pot Donuts. And anyone from Seattle will know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> and I would drive there every day, right? Because I worked right next door. I didn't drive to the donut shop. I drove to my work. Um, but And so the data that was being collected is, okay, I turn on my car at this time. You know, that, that's a data log. And then I drive, you know, in, in terms of my Apple phone, it knows once I'm connected, it knows I'm driving. And then when I arrive at the place, it knows the the location and it knows, you know, the local businesses. And so mm-hmm. um, Siri, one morning, I turned on my car and it, it prompted me and it said, um, Top Pot Do- Donuts is only 13 minutes away. Traffic is light, you know, take this route. And and I, I chuckled. I was amused because I thought, OK, first of all, why is Siri enabling my supposed donut addiction? <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> but then also the data it had an understand data gives us knowledge. It answers mm-hmm. what, but it doesn't understand why. So even though Siri had been tuned to try to understand where you're going and why you're going there, she got it wrong in a way that a human mm-hmm. never would. And right, so right. I think it's easy as we're seeing these sort of constructs, Wizard of Oz like constructs mm-hmm. where, oh my goodness, you know, like the Chinese room experiment, right? Like if you, the Chinese room experiment is that if I went in a door, I don't, I don't speak Cantonese or Man- Mandarin. But if I went inside of a room and and there was a lookup table on the wall of of characters and someone who does speak it, Mandarin or, or Cantonese, slipped the characters underneath and I looked at the, the wall and I slipped another character back for that person, the other side of the wall, they might be having a really meaningful conversation. They could fall in love. They could mm. I could help them grieve. I could do any number of things without having any understanding of the language, what we're talking about what it would mean to them that we're talking about it. Cause I don't, I have no idea. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just passing information back and forth. Right. And so that's effectively what's happening with neural networks. Neural, mm-hmm. neural networks do not understand anything. They, they basically have math. They're, they're applying math fast. And so they know the probabilities of, you know, if, if this word has been put in this, in the prompt, 
these are the most natural words that go next. And they've, they've they're, they're, there's it's elegant the way that it's been created. But in a way, I would think of it more as a siloed, really incredible individual capability. And it, it's a non sequitur leap to then think that it's become conscious or that there's a risk of it becoming conscious, setting its own goals, escaping its servers, taking over other servers, right? That to <laughs> me, that I disagree with, with Elon and with others in the space yeah. that have that fear. But I do agree to your original question. I absolutely agree about power in this space of, of AI. I think it's mm. important that there's a distribution. Mm. Um, I don't think there should be a monopoly for a number of reasons. I do think that AI ha- presents capabilities that could be used improperly, either intentionally by, you know, um, by people or accidentally. And I think we've already started to see some some versions of that. Um, I think when we, I think that the centralization of that is is not is not good. I also think open sourcing it's it's a tough it's a tough balance because if you fully open source everything and every capability, then bad act, actors will have very easy access to go right. leverage and use those capabilities for for evil as well. Mm. Um, and so it's it's not an easy decision. I do agree in the sense that it shouldn't all be in one organization or even just a couple organizations' mm. hands. Thanks for, for entertaining that. I appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure. Anything else about the book that I haven't asked about that you want to make sure we walk away with? Yes, there, there's one. And I'd say um, it's one of my favorite things to talk about from the book. And, uh, and that's that we, I think we as people need to move from being data-driven to being reason-driven. I think a lot of organizations, there's been this push to be data-driven. And it makes sense because being gut-driven is not as good as being data-driven, right? Making decisions mm-hmm. without information, you're, you're much less likely to make a good decision than if you do have information. Um, but in most organizations, the way that we make um, decisions has become unscientific. Mm-hmm. And so, and I'll, I'll defend it because I know that's a, a pretty bold statement, but um, the way that we make decisions in, in most organizations has has evolved to be, if you think about the scientific method, the scientific method begins with a question, asking questions, mm. forming hypotheses, experimenting, and then um, gathering results and, and analyzing those results and then drawing a conclusion, right? In most organizations today, what we do is we say, we're going to be scientific about our decisions and we're going to use data. And we say, all right, so let's ask questions, form hypotheses gather data of what we've already done or other people have done, analyze the results of that, and then we'll draw a conclusion. Then that becomes our investment decision. And then we'll set out in the experiment. But instead of calling an experiment, we're going to set a deadline on it. We, we've proven in advance that it's going to generate ROI, how long it's going to take, and we're going to tie people's performance to it. And so you can already see how that we've broken mm. away from science in the way that we make decisions. And so I think that we as people can evolve. I think we can do better. I think that we can evolve from being data driven to being reason driven mm-hmm. to where we say, okay, we're once we've set a future that we want to create, we generate a set of theories of things that would have to be true for us to arrive at those at that future. And then each of those theories breaks down into various hypotheses. And then we invest in, in proving or disproving a hypothesis. And the measure flips from generating ROI on every single individual initiative, mm-hmm. which obviously can still be a, a part of the equation and should be, we should still leverage data. We should still try to be, of course, we should still be profit. We need to be profitable, but um, the way that we can re-embrace, I would say a more scientific way of going about, especially in the innovation space of going about decision-making where we're accepting the fact that we are commissioning expeditions into the unknown and we're, and we're counting as rigorously for our human discipline of reason as we do for the computer aspect of data. And those two together, I think are much more powerful than just data. 
I actually had a question I was going to ask you about data-driven decision-making versus reason-driven decision-making, and I crossed it out. What was I thinking? <laughs> I'm, I'm so glad you got that in there. <laughs> well, um, let me ask you a couple of questions not directly related to the book, if I may. Uh, and the first one is about books. I'd love it if you could recommend a book or two that uh, has had a significant impact on you. I'll recommend two. My favorite novel of all time is East of Eden by Steinbeck. And that book has been, yeah, it's my favorite novel of all time. So people that like to read novels and, you know, I, I don't know when this is going to be released, but if it's around a vacation time or something like that, that, that that's one of my all-time favorite novels, or that is my all-time favorite novel at this point. What I love about it is it it really touches on the question of sort of what it means to be human. I actually mm-hmm. quoted it in the beginning of my, uh, I think it was the first, one of the first quotations in the book, opening up one of the chapters. And, um, and then in terms of my favorite business book, it's tough to choose because there's just so many great ones. But I would say that the business book that made the biggest impact on the way that, that where I took the framework from it and I've applied it rigorously and think about it at least several times a week. And, and it's kind of come into the way that I do everything in terms of communication is, um, well, there's really two, I wouldn't, it would be unfair to only do one. So there's two, one is, um, Kim Scott's radical candor is, mm-hmm. uh, is, has been a, a huge book for me to be able to, I, I would consider myself to have been ruinously empathetic prior to reading her book and then learning that, okay, that, I'm not helping others by withholding the feedback that they need. And I, I think I'm doing them a kindness when really I'm I'm holding back their career. They need that feedback in order to, they don't have that feedback. How can they can improve? Mm. Um, and here's how to do it in a, in a humane kind way. And so um, that book has made a tremendous impact. And then I would say Nancy Duarte and uh, Patty Sanchez's, if you're familiar with their work, um, Illuminate and um, Nancy Duarte's way of thinking and talking, their, their way of thinking and talking about the story arc of how we give presentations, you know, because you can have, and I've seen so many times people have these incredible visions and strategies, you know, in a private conversation, you think, wow, that is just, that is incredible. And then you watch them communicate, try to communicate with their team or, or get on stage to give a presentation about it. And you think, oh, it's being lost. It's lost in translation because they're, the, the arc of the, the way they're trying to tell that story, they're immediately, they're leading with maybe a technical detail that, you know, sh- sort of shuts people off right from the start. Um, and so I think that the illuminate is it, they've done a great job of, of giving people a tool set for being able to communicate uh, very clearly. Uh, in episode 124, we're on episode 507 <laughs> now, I think. Uh, I interviewed Nancy and Patty about about that very book. There you go. So you know. I love, love, love their work. Uh, last question, uh, and this relates to, to personal knowledge management. And I love asking this question of authors in particular who do a fair amount of research. We're all you know, bombarded with information daily, learning new things. There are certain things we want to remember, other things we want to just let go of. When it comes to making sure that the things you learn, the ideas that capture your attention don't get lost and have a chance to sort of serendipitously crash into other ideas that are seemingly disparate at first, what are some of your strategies or tools for for managing your personal knowledge such that you can, when you're ready, then create with these things that you've accumulated? That's a great, that is a great question. And I would say that I'm a little bit more of a gunslinger than I would like to be when it comes to knowledge management. (laughs) I like that. I like that description. (laughs) So if there's something like I had an idea yesterday for an article that I was like, oh, I really, that's, that's important. I really don't want to forget that. Mm. So I asked, and I feel like if I say her name, she's going to pop up on my phone again, but I asked Siri to remind me about it in the morning. Because yeah. I thought, okay, then I'm going to take it and I'll write it down in my OneNote. And so I, I use OneNote and I use notes, um, 
note i uh, the iphone notes app mm-hmm. um, a fair amount i you, i try to just use one note for anything that's writing and and business and the iphone one for personal but sometimes it's easier to just write down a list of things in the iphone notes and then because i have a windows machine then i end up having to email it to myself to then transfer into one note uh. And then unfortunately I am one of those people who, who has too many browser tabs open. So I'll see an mm-hmm. article and think I need to read that and I'll just leave it there for, you know, weeks. Um, and then, you know, hope I'll try to get to it at some point. But, um, generally I think that I, I rely a lot on my, I guess my brain. I, 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 mm-hmm. I often quote when, when someone is talking to me about something and they say, Oh, I can't, I forgot this thing that I was talking about. I always say like, well, if it's important, it'll come back to you, you know? So, um, I think I, I think that with with information or ideas that I've come up with, you know, there's somewhere I think I just have to write that down somewhere because I don't want to lose it. Um, but other times, other times I'll, I will kind of rely on on my mind to to bring it to resurface it or or to. Um, I love what Adam Grant talked about with ideas. How he said that procrastination leads to. I'm, I'm curious if he was on one of your episodes, but mm-hmm. procrastination leads to um, you know really working through and you're 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 refining the idea over time so that when you actually get to it, it ends up being. And I I, I don't consider myself a procrastinator. But I will say that I, I take a lot of time with ideas and I keep mulling them over and, and trying to look at them from different angles. Mm-hmm. And so in a way, I find that writing it down too early or mm-hmm. writing down too explicitly, now it's locked, at least for me, now it's kind of locked in in that shape. So sometimes I'll write down fragments of something to, that will be enough to remind me of the idea, but I want to keep mulling over it and not let it quite take shape yet, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, to your to your uh, inquiry, we've not had Adam on the show, though I've had many of his colleagues on the show, some of whom I've reached out to and said, hey, could you make an introduction? And they're like, he's on another level. We don't talk. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I just thought I'd try. (laughs) Well, Brian's book, again, is called Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. It's one I highly recommend, especially if this topic is on your hot list. And I can't imagine it's not uh, whatever a hot list is. I couldn't think of a better term. Get it is what I'm only trying to say. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time and being there. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Jeff. Hearing Brian talk about Illuminate makes me want to go back and reread it since it's been quite a few years since I read that book. If you want to dig into the books he recommended, the other resources we talked about, and get a summary of this episode, you can do that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 507 for episode 507. Remember, to the place to go to find out more about being a part of the Read to Lead community and a Read to Lead Plus membership is at jeffbrown.me. We wanted to make it as inexpensive as possible so there's no excuse for not participating. It's a no-brainer when it's just, in my opinion at least, $9 a month. Again, your first 14 days are free, so you get a chance to check it out and make sure it's for you. JeffBrown.me, the place to go. Well, I certainly hope you had a very Merry Christmas. I wish you nothing but the best going into 2024 as we wrap up another year. I hope to see you again next time we meet. Until next time, or in this case, next year, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 